Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Book Journeys Radio, an interview series for authors in transformation. From the basic fundamentals of selecting a book topic and overcoming writer's block to advanced techniques for publishing and marketing your books. Don't forget to check out our complete schedule and archive shows at blogtalkradio.com forward slash book dash journeys. Now, get ready to make a difference with your book with your host, founder of the author incubator, Dr. Angela Loria. Well, hey, 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 everybody. We are back at Book Journeys Radio. It's another week and another book. And we are today uh, talking to Romani Dervasala. Uh, she is uh, a licensed clinical psychologist, a professional uh, professor of psychology, and most importantly for our show, she is the author of You Are Why You Eat, Change Your Food Attitude, Change Your Life. So, um, Romani, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. So um, we always like to get started just by giving people a sense of what your book is about. So tell us about You Are Why You Eat. To me, You Are Why You Eat may represent one of the most you know, unique and useful books, not just in the weight loss shelf, I think that's actually a small part of it, but just the general wellness shelf. Every weight loss, mm. weight loss book out there is about don't eat this, eat this, work out like that. They're very directive. This book basically says you already know the answer. You've got it, and it's really about listening to your body. Most of us eat when we're not hungry. If you could just stop doing that, the weight would probably just come off of you. We eat for lots of other reasons. So while it takes on the issue of emotional eating, it also takes on the issue of the fact that we tend to live our lives, just like we tend to eat food when other people tell us to, when, we, when the world tells us to, just like we live our lives like that. So a lot of people, for example, will stay in a relationship way past its shelf life because everyone's saying, you can't leave, we like you in that relationship. It's the same thing at the table. So this book is a really wonderful opportunity for people to sort of stop and take stock, not just of how they eat, but also of how they live. Hmm. Wow, that's incredibly powerful. So, how, how did you how did you make the decision to write this book? How did you come up with this idea? This was an, a long process for me. I think that you know where it started. In fact, the original working title of the book was the Dirty Plate Club, which people said, "Well, that's a little <laughs> dark down." But in fact, it was this uh-huh. idea. We're all raised on the clean plate club. Eat everything on your plate, even if you're no longer hungry, because you're supposed to, even if you didn't put that much food on it. That's where it started from. And what I noticed with a lot of my clients, my students, even myself, was that we tended to eat blindly. At the same time, I noticed that I and everyone else seemed to be living blindly. Now, I myself have lost 85 pounds, which gave the book, uh, there's sort of like a little bit of truth behind it in, in terms of life. It's, quite, it's one thing to have never struggled with weight and write a book on it, it's quite another to understand why day after day this is such a struggle. So it really came from my own experiences, myself, my students, my patients, my own children, and then the story of my own life, many of the things that happened in my life, my, my divorce, my decisions around my career. And so I thought, you know, other people need to hear this because I am tired of watching people beat up their bodies, beat up their minds, and beat up their souls. I want them to live according to the expert on them, which is themselves. So that's where the book came from. So that's a pretty personal story that you just told, but when I look at your 
credentials, you seem sort of uh, very well educated in the space. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about your your training and your background? Maybe give because we didn't start off with a bio. So why don't you kind of talk about your background and your training and certifications and degrees, Absolutely. which there are many of, and how that I, ties. I view myself as like a four-headed psychologist in some ways. You know, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Connecticut, proudly so, wonderful university. And then I, um, I did a little research in New York City, but then I got awarded a fellowship to come study at UCLA, which in my mind was the best program of its kind in the country at that time. So I packed up my little Toyota, drove out here, got my Ph.D. at UCLA, did a lot of my clinical training at UCLA, and then I went on to become a professor, where I still am a professor, at California State University, Los Angeles. So I really, really developed myself as a scientist and as a scholar, and a lot of that really drives the book. Another thing I love about this book is it's not made up. It's actually based in science. But I also became Mm. licensed as a practicing psychologist in 1998, so I'm licensed to practice in California. And that obviously gave me exposure not to just sort of the big samples we work on in research, but individual people's stories. Then I'm obviously a teacher. I'm a professor, so I get to teach students, and students may be the best teachers of all because they share their experiences, and you learn to very quickly get a lot of information delivered to people who know less than you. And finally... As a psychologist, I got highly involved in the media. And, in fact, one of my big forays into the media world was as a psychologist on a weight loss television show for Bravo. And that subsequently then there was another television show I did for the Oxygen Network called My Shopping Addiction. And and I've since done series for the Biography Channel and Investigation Discovery. I'm regularly on headline news. So I also get to be sort of an expert voice for the field on a whole variety of mental health issues. And that's what I mean by I have four heads. I'm a... I'm a teacher, I'm a researcher, I'm a, a, you know, sort of a, a private practitioner, a therapist, and I'm a media expert. And so I get to, th- that's sort of the trajectory that I've been on, and it's been a great one because it's never boring. It's never the same day twice. And all of that went to inform this book, which is why I think it's such a great clearinghouse of information. So why did you, what did you want from this book? What were your goals in writing this for yourself, obviously for your for your reader, you wanted them to sort of understand this connection between, you know, your attitude and your thoughts and, and food. But what did you want for it for you? You know, it's, it's such a it's such a great question, Andrew, Angela. It, it, the reason it's such a great question is that authors do need to think about their motivations. And in this case, my motivation was very much getting psychology off that big ivory tower shelf that it sits on and making it usable by everybody. I think one of my big problems is here you've put all these hours into the training of all these scholarly psychologists, and we can't speak a sentence that anybody can understand, and yet we're sitting on all this really important information. So I wanted to take all that sciencey stuff and make it usable, number one. Um, you know, number two, many times my own patients were leaving saying, gosh, I wish I wrote that down. So I thought, well, I'm going to write a book, and then they can take it home. Many people don't live in California, can't come see me as a therapist, so it's a way to get that word out there. And I'll be honest with you, I mean, this is sort of a strange revelation, but when I was a little kid, I always wanted to be an author. I always wanted to write a book, and I thought, well, you get one shot at this life, and just like I pushed myself through weight loss and all these other things, I said, write your story, write it, and, and get it out there. And so it became very much a labor of love, which now I'm actually working on a second book, and then it sort of becomes an addiction once you start writing. You it does. Stop. That's what I always say. Books are like tattoos. You never stop at one. You never stop getting them. Yes, and I, I feel like before I know it, I'm going to have everything up to my face tattooed, so I'm on my way. Yeah. 
So what? Um, so for you, what do you wish that you knew before you started your book journey? Mm, okay, here's what's such an interesting question. What I wish I knew, and it's the one thing I've never been taught how to do and still can't do, is how to sell a book. I don't know how to sell stuff, nothing. I mean, that's why I'm a they professor. They don't teach that in med build. school? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm sorry? Curious. Yeah, you know, we don't learn they that. Don't no, we're never taught that. In fact, if anything, we learn how to give it away for free. And so I never learned that. And I have to say the writing of a book is the easy part. Selling it feels almost impossible because it is. It is, especially in the world we're in. There's so many different ways to market something, which you think would make it easier, but I think the public is saturated by stuff to buy, books to buy, concepts to buy, and I just did not know how to do it, and nor did I. I'm also not independently wealthy. Few professors are, so I wasn't able to mount some sort of big marketing campaign. So it was very grassroots, and I was very lucky. Like I, I there's some supporters I had, the folks at the Today Show, Anderson Cooper, like w- were wonderful about giving me a platform on which to talk about my book. But ultimately, you know, it is, it's hard to sell a book. People don't read and consume information the same way they once did. I wish I knew more about how to do that. I don't know what I would have done differently because, frankly, it does require resources. And I think for every author out there that's listening, write the book for the love of the book. Do your best to sell it. But, again, write it for the love of the writing because the marketing, either you know how to do it or you don't. I didn't. I simply just didn't know how to do it. Right. What are some of the other things? So here's an interesting thing is a lot of people, when they write the book, they're thinking, okay, I'm going to write this book, I'm going to put it out there, and people will buy it. Some sort of, if you build it, they will come thing. Right. But then what they find out is that part isn't so easy, but there are a whole bunch of other benefits to being an author. Can you talk about for you, what are some of the things that have come out of being an author? I couldn't agree more, and I think there's so many wonderful things, both at, at small levels and big levels. Like I said, it gives me something to give a patient or an interested person that they can leave with. So when it's 10 o'clock at night, they can read it and they get the information. The other thing it's allowed me to do is reach out to different kinds of audiences. Let me give you a great example. I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to a large audience of folks at Universal Studios, the the wonderful people who work there, like everything from the concession stands to the offices and everything. Talk to them about wellness. And the lecture impacted a woman in the audience. And now this Saturday, I'm going to talk about the book with a group of women who are uh, in homeless, living in homeless shelters or transitioning to more stable residential settings. I'm getting to outreach to groups in so many different ways and getting so many different wellness messages out there, which I don't think would have happened if I didn't have a book to offer up to share. So it's allowed me to share my voice with so many more people, not just in the United States, but also around the world. And so I think that that's been wonderful. And so sometimes it's the individual conversations that feel the most transformative. I literally once had a woman approach me in a grocery store or something like that, and she said, you know, your book gave me the courage to make the changes in my life I finally needed to make. I thought, you know what, if that's all the book did, I changed one life, it was worth every minute of work. So I I think that it allows you to see people in a very, very different way. And you know what, it also makes me an interesting role model for my students. I work at a wonderful university that serves um, largely um, first-generation college students. So in, the, in me, then they see the possibility. I say there's no reason every one of you can't sit down and write your story or write a book that matters to you. So I think you get to be a role model in a very different way, too. So all of these things came from being a first-time and hopefully second, third, and tenth-time author. Um, I just think it's a wonderful thing to do. In this world of self-publishing, frankly, anyone can get out there and get their word out there, which I think is wonderful. 
Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about your writing process because you do not exactly sound like a lady of leisure. It doesn't sound like you were sitting quietly (laughs) at a cafe. I'm driving for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So talk to me about how you made time to write and what your writing schedule was like and how long did it take? Did you work with an editor? My writing process should be an inspiration to anybody out there who says they don't have enough time to write a book. Like I told you, I have four jobs, and I'm a single mother of two daughters. So I live in chronic chaos. And this book would be written sometimes an hour here, 30 minutes there. I decided to invest in a babysitter for six months so I would feed my children, get them through their homework, and then while they played for a bit, I'd go work for two hours, and then I'd come down, put them to bed, and then work for another four hours. So I worked a lot late at night. I'd work early in the morning. When I could, I would create entire writing days on the weekend, and those often made me anxious because I'd feel like, oh, my gosh, you're here with the writing day. This is your 12-hour day, and I wouldn't be in the mood. And I was like, oh, my goodness, if I blow this, this is, this is gold. Like, I have to work on these days. And, I'd, and what I would do then is I'd break the task down to be more manageable. Instead of saying, write for 12 hours, I'd set a timer. I'd write for an hour. Then I would go do something else. Whatever. It could even mm. be washing the dishes or something or go to the gym. And then what would sometimes happen is the timer would go off, but then I'd be in my groove, and I'd keep going. I would sometimes set myself a deadline of a chapter before I did something. And so you, you would be surprised, but I would say to anyone wanting to write a book, make it a daily practice. Even if all you do is like a minimum of 15 minutes a day, every day your fingers hit keyboard and you add to your book. And some days you have 12 hours and isn't that grand? I think that's absolutely critical. And then I gave myself one big reward. I actually rented a little house in Italy from a a friend of a colleague, and I went there. I had him shut down all wireless, and in this little house on the Italian coast, I finished the book. And I was completely uninterrupted, mm. and I didn't speak Italian. So wow, <laughs> that's pretty good. And that was like a gift to myself, and I, I think some of my best writing ha- happened there. But I think it has to be a daily practice. You have to find a way to schedule your life. And, again, even if you are managing kids and jobs, and, um, and you often have to sacrifice stuff. I'd often have to tell friends, no, I can't get together. I have to get writing done tonight. So you have to make a promise to yourself to do it. Yeah, let's talk about that. When you started your book, did you envision it as completed? Did you know it would be done? Did you say, I, I'm trying to write a book? What was your mindset when you started the project? When I started the project, it was obviously just a proposal, and then it got pitched to multiple publishers, and then a publisher, the skirt imprint of Globe Pequot Press, acquired the book. The nice thing about having a traditional publisher was they gave me deadlines, and if you give me a deadline, I'm the kind of person that come hell or high water, I will meet that deadline. So I think having the external demands of a publisher was very useful for me, because it was my first book, I didn't want to let anybody down, so I, I sat down, I got the writing done. In terms of the final product, I had a vision for what, like, so by the time it gets to a proposal stage, you do lay out sections and chapters. You kind of, it's almost like the framing of a house you're building, right? You kind of know where the windows are going to be and where the roof's going to be and where the rooms are. The actual writing is where you start putting up the true walls and the doors and all that other stuff. And things got moved around. Something I thought was going to be Chapter 3 ended up being Chapter 16. We added chapters. We moved around content. We used graphics. So that was, like I said, that's almost like you frame the house before you write, really write mm. the book. 
then you start filling it up. And that, that's how I approach most of my large writing projects, whether scientific articles or grants and certainly a book. So I think that you do need a framework. That has to start you, and then that gives you something to work with. And it also helps you break the task down. So I had a vision for what this would be. I'll be honest with you, the book turned out a lot better than I ever dreamed. Once I started, it just grew mm-hmm. into something more, which was wonderful. That is wonderful. So with your relationship with your publisher, did you have just one big deadline when the entire book was due, or like did you break it into thirds, or were you were you sharing parts with an editor along the way? I think what what the publisher did with me is what anybody should do when they're writing a book, even if they should choose to self-publish it, which was I had mega deadlines and I had smaller deadlines, and some of those were self-imposed. So the mega deadline was I was very clear when the final manuscript was going to be delivered, okay? Then I was also very clear on when the first, the entire full first draft, because I have to do count the words and all of that, would end up going to the publisher for full-on line-by-line editing. And then in between that, they wanted to see chapters and sections to ensure that the voice was in there. So those were the sub-deadlines. I gave myself a personal deadline of one chapter per week for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. So I had my deadlines. I had their mega deadline when this thing was going to be delivered to the publisher. And then there were sort of these sub-deadlines of when they had to have it for fully for copy editing, meaning you could not add another word to this book versus these sort of subsection deadlines. And I think anybody writing a book really has to take a long, hard look and say, okay, this is it. This is when this book's going to be done. And it helped a lot to have those, the big, the medium, and the small deadlines. And so when you were uh, aiming to write a chapter a week, you know, let's say the week was starting, you just turned in your last chapter and you knew what your goal, you know, my goal this week is to write whatever, chapter 15, and then maybe something would come up that week, Uh, maybe a sick kid or you didn't feel like writing or you had one of your 12-hour days and it didn't go well. What were some of the ways that you would get back on track? What did you do when you would feel stuck those stuck weeks were hard weeks because no matter what i wouldn't let that weekend without the chapter getting done and what it really ultimately meant was a lot of personal sacrifice canceling with friends not going to anything that felt quote-unquote optional um maybe not you know working out as long as i wanted to. i mean really you gave up a lot because i was unwilling to give up time with my kids Obviously, I had to go to work to you know, draw my salary. And so mm-hmm. I would say, okay, you had dinner plans on Friday. The chapter's not done. It has to be done by Saturday. Guess what you're not doing on Friday night? You're not going out to dinner. And I think that it was really – and then I'd have Friday night to work, and that was often enough time to get it done. So I think it was that while the book was being written, the book was like a third child. It became a priority. Mm-hmm. Other things I would sometimes do is I'd, I would rely on a babysitter more. I'd say, okay, tonight you're also going to get some dinner, you know, so I can get through this part of the writing. So you would you would have to... Well, I actually want to go back to this point of the book yeah. was like a child because yes. I think that's a really good image that people can put in their heads. If, you, if your kid got an ear infection, you wouldn't be like, hey, kid, stay here and scream with the babysitter. I'm going to dinner. I had plans. Nope. You're going to cancel your dinner and you're going to take care yep. of the baby. And when yep. you make a commitment to write a book, you're going to you're gonna cancel yep. dinner and you're going to stay home and take care of the baby because the baby's not doing well. And that's so exactly right. It was my really third child. It was a really good mindset. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's how I treated it. And I said, no matter what, this has to remain the priority. And let me tell you, it was hard. There were weeks when I was like, you've got to be kidding. Friday would come so fast. I'd always make myself the promise it would be done by the end of the day on a Saturday. And I would, be, I would have that laptop on my lap in the carpool waiting line at my child's basketball games. That thing was with me everywhere. I would, if I had 20 minutes of waiting at a doctor, I was writing. So I was squeezing it into every possible minute. The great weeks, I had a lot of time. And sometimes I'd get two chapters done in a week, which would give me a little breathing room the next week. So mm. there were ways I could move it around. But again, much like we were able to prioritize human beings in our lives, a book is a living, breathing creature. So um, did you ever get just not know what you were going to say, have some sort of writer's block? And was there anything that helped you get out of that? Oh, I had writer's block every single day. And (laughs) I would sometimes, you know, I would do, sometimes I would talk parts of the book. So I'd say, I'm able to say this so well. So at those times, I would actually dictate it into my phone or into a recorder, play it back and transcribe it, because then I felt like it was easier to talk then write, which was really useful. I would write what I call crazy style, which I'd start vomiting my words, complete stream of consciousness, get it down, get it down, get it down. And I think that once I started getting it down, even if it was nonsense, nonsense started becoming good stuff. It was just the very act of sitting at the computer. So let's say you were, you know, I was writing a section on choosing healthy foods. There are lots of healthy foods. Healthy foods are vegetables. I mean, I was, I was writing like a first grader, and then I would I'd start getting my momentum. It was almost like getting to the gym and starting to, you know, say, I don't want to get on the treadmill. Just start slow, and then before you know it, you're running at full speed. So it was, it was never letting myself walk away from it, but whether it was dictation, whether it was typing stream of consciousness, sometimes it was writing bulleted points that I knew I would then be able to come in and fill in so I wasn't so overwhelmed. What am I going to say? I had my 10 things I wanted to say. Subheadings helped me a lot with writer's block because then I didn't feel like I was having to write 30 continuous pages, but in fact I was having to write two paragraphs under a subheading. That made it more manageable. Then I could always jump to another subheading that felt more comfortable. But when it came right down to brass tacks, I just couldn't get it together to write. I would change scene. I would walk. Exercise was huge because I would start daydreaming and I'd say, oh, I get it. I would take a shower, believe it or not. That's where I do a lot of my thinking. So I would do something to change up the game. What I would try not to do is eat because that would sort of make me sluggish. And it's exactly what I was writing about telling people not to do. So I would do something different. Take a walk, go to the gym, take a shower. Those kinds of things helped a lot. Yeah, that's all really great stuff. So let's talk for a minute about um, publishing. So you talked about the fact that you had a traditional publisher. Mm-hmm. How did you find your publisher? I had, at the, t- at the time, I had a literary agent, a book agent, who liked the concept, felt like I had a decent enough platform through my television work, and then she started taking it around town. And I'll tell you about probably, you know, many, many publishers said no. This one said yes. And the irony was the acquisitions editor at this publisher she had such a great eye, of course I thought, because she acquired my book, but she got it. Brilliant like, woman. Either you got it or you didn't get it, and she got it. And um, and as a result, we were able to talk in shorthand about the book from day one. So I had someone helping me sell this book. I've got to be honest with you, I don't know how I would sell a book to a traditional publisher had I not done that my first time around. And so that was that was very helpful to have somebody who kind of got it, and that's how it got picked up, and... And then it was off to the races, and that you know that acquisition that it remains a very dear friend of mine. You know, again, she got it. 
And so the agent that you worked with, mm-hmm. did you write your proposal to find your agent? Like, did you write a proposal and then just send it to a bunch of agents? Or did someone introduce you to an agent? How did you meet her? I had a little bit of a convoluted process because at the time, my agent was housed in the very same agency that my television agent was based in. And so oh. I already had sort of like I was already interacting in that agency. Then a third party said, you should talk to this woman. And then I went and I met with her, and she got it. Like, again, she was another person who sort of got it and said, you know, you really do have a great voice, and let's get this out there. So um, it was, and I think that anybody who's searching for any kind of representation, whether it's a publisher, whether it's an agent, all of us are writing something that's a little bit idiosyncratic to us. I don't care if it's fiction or nonfiction. We're telling a specific kind of story. Not everyone's going to get it. You want that person who represents you, who publishes you, to get what you're saying, the essence of it. And you'll know because they'll say it back to you in a way and say, ah, you get it. And they'll, they, yeah. without that, I'm not convinced that anybody could ever sell your work, could ever sell your, your stuff to somebody else. If they truly don't believe in you, I think it, it feels empty. Like there are car salesmen who doesn't want to sell these cars. You don't want that as your voice, for again, for your own baby, so to speak. So I was very lucky that those people did get it, and that's how it got through the process. And, and I hate to say it, it feels so random, right? I knew this person, then I knew that person. Because once upon a time, years ago, before I ever started doing TV, I tried to read a book, and I started blind calling and cold calling agents, and I got nowhere fast. I called 30 different people, and most of them didn't return my calls or emails. Yep. Yeah, but that is all part of the process, and, and building process. your platform is is yep. mm-hmm. an important key if you're going to get an agent's attention. Absolutely. So what's next for you? You said you have another book in mind. Would you I go do. through the process the same way, or is there anything you um, do I don't know. I, I, and this is where I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this because I really want your listeners to benefit my book did not make the New York Times list. It was not some runaway success. I am not flying to Paris to talk to fancy people about my book. Uh-huh. It had a very grassroots following. It did beautifully as an ebook. I'm very proud of how it did. I'm not I'm not a movie star. I'm not an athlete. I'm not a celebrity. I'm a sort of a I'm, I'm a bookish professor who gets to be on TV sometimes. And so I think I did well with it. But I don't know that any traditional publisher on the planet is going to take a chance on me now. And so I face mm. the prospect of, is this about selling a commodity or about the love of writing a book? And for me, it's about the love of writing a book and getting what I think is an important message out there. So interestingly, my next book is in a, it's a different space. It's a, work, a space I work in clinically, which is relationships, and very specifically people, particularly women, who get into relationships with really narcissistic men. And to help them not get in in the first place, if they're in, help them get out, and if they decide to stay in, help them prepare for what their life's about to look like or has already looked like. So it's, it's, a, it's a harder-hitting book because I spend a lot of my time talking people off the ledge of being with a really mean guy. And, um, and I think that people sometimes need guidance or at least normalization. So it's really that book. It's very much a, this is how you deal with that kind of not-so-nice guy. And, um, yeah, that and I sounds think that like it's a, a very yeah. important book. Oh, it's I know a lot of people who, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. And then, and you know what, so, though? So many people stay, so that's why I'm writing it. And I, I love the process. That's the bottom line. I love the process. That is fantastic advice. So we've got about a minute left, and I know you get this question all the time. 
Um, and so I, I, every author seems to be asked, like, oh, I really want to write a book. How did you do it? Like, what is your advice to somebody who comes to you and says that they really want to be an author, but they haven't been able to make it happen? Write from a place of heart. Write what you know. Write what ignites you. Write what, about what keeps you up at night, whether that's your grandmother's life story that you love to cook a fictional story you've been carrying within you about a time in history about how to teach people to do yoga. You have to care about it and care about it deeply because that emotion and that passion comes out onto the page and that's what grabs people by the throat. A book can transform a life, but it can only do that if you feel passionate about it. Once you have that passion, just like we know, we'd walk through fire for a person we love, we'd probably walk through fire to write the book we love. Wow. That was fantastic advice. Uh, that needs to be that needs to be the title of this uh, of this program. That's really what it all comes down to. Yes. I um, I I can't thank you enough for sharing that. Romani Dervisula, um, her website is www. Doctor Dash Romani. That's the word doctor spelled out. A dash or a hyphen, and then Romani R A M A N I, Doctor Dash Romani dot com. Um, that is the website. The book you can find on Amazon is You Are Why You Eat, Change Your Food Attitude, Change Your Life. Romani, thank you so much for being with thank us today. Thank you so much. This is a wonderful opportunity, and I hope everyone goes out there and writes the book that they want to read. <laughs> write the book you want to read beautiful well thank you again we will be back next week at Book Journeys Radio changing the world one book at a time this has been another episode of Book Journeys Radio where we're changing the world one book at a time to find out more about how you can get your book written published and promoted visit www.theauthorincubator.com Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.